If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. If you don't have a copy that you can take home or to read at home, please feel free to take one of those. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word as you continue to answer questions like, Who is Jesus? If you're a guest, we're actually nearing the end of a series of sermons studying the gospel according to Mark. By nearing the end, I mean that we are not at the end. We have two more sermons. Next Sunday, we will look at the entire gospel of Mark in our Sunday morning service as we try to draw some applications and some key takeaways together from our time in this gospel. And then next Sunday evening, we're going to turn our attention to the longer ending, not originally in the Gospel of Mark, that's probably bracketed in your Bible with a footnote that says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So I hope to try to answer a little bit about why that's there, why we're not going to preach from it, how you can still trust the Bible and its sufficiency. So if you're able, please join us next Sunday morning and next Sunday evening as we Include our series in Mark's Gospel. This morning I'm going to begin reading actually in chapter 15, verse 42. And as I read, if you're a person who likes to write in your Bible, I want to encourage you to circle every time you see the word died or dead. And then I want you to underline every time you see the word tomb. Mark writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned that the centurion uh, from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. We pray that you write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. 
God, we are so glad to be together today. We are so thankful that you have brought together believers and, Father, unbelievers to hear your word preached. For those who are Christians, may they be encouraged today to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which they have been called and that they profess. And for those who are not believers, we pray that your spirit would do the good work of grace and soften their hearts that they might turn to Jesus in faith, that they might look at the crucified Son of God, the resurrected Son of God, and live. And we ask all of this in the great name of our triune God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. And the people of Christ Church Westchester said, Amen. The entire Bible, as D.A. Carson said, pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. Nothing is more central to the Bible than Jesus' death and resurrection. And any attempt to make sense of the Bible that does not give prolonged thought to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is doomed to failure and is at best an exercise in irrelevance. As we turn our attention to the resurrection of Jesus this morning, we must pause to consider what it was like for the disciples. That the hours between Jesus' death and the announcement of his resurrection on that Sunday morning must have been some of the darkest hours in their lives. All of their hopes and all of their dreams and all of their expectations had died when Jesus died which is what makes Mark chapter 16 such wonderfully good news. Three points will frame our time together this morning. Jesus was dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus and Peter. Notice first, Jesus was dead. Look again in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Mark closes chapter 15 by introducing us to a new character group in his gospel, women who followed Jesus. Just look in chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These women were actually looking on from afar as Jesus was mocked, mistreated, and breathed his last. Women who had followed Jesus from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, saw him dead, buried, and sealed in a tomb. Women went with Jesus all the way to the end. Now that may sound unremarkable to your 21st century ears, but in the context of first century Palestine, it was highly significant since women were often treated as second class citizens and had no societal standing. Yet Mark tells us that they were among some of the earliest disciples. They were among the first disciples. And he goes to great lengths in his gospel to inform us that two women in particular were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Just look in verse 40. 
Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph. Then look in verse 47 of chapter 15. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. Then look in chapter 16, verse 1. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. The faith of these women stood upright when the faith of men failed. In the midst of a culture that believed that women were nothing more than sexual objects and servants, Mark tells us that women have an important place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Women, there is great work for you to do in the kingdom of Christ without being pastors or preachers. The Bible says that women are essential to the kingdom of God. Women are grafted into the royal lineage of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Women do good works and acts of charity, Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Women are worshipers of God, Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Women are patrons of the church, Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Women are fellow workers in the Lord, Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Women serve as deacons, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. Women pass on the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Women disciple other women, Titus chapter 2, verse 4. Women received back their dead by resurrection because of their great faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. Women are fellow heirs of the grace of life, Hebrews chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. These are only a few examples, and these examples are only from the New Testament. These women are mentioned by name three times in nine verses as a mark of historical authenticity. People would have known who they were. People would have been able to go and speak to these women and ask them if they really saw what they said that they saw or what they have heard that they saw. But they are mentioned three times in nine verses to teach us that women can do great things for God, even if they do not do all of the same things as men. Notice that I did not say can't do all the same things as men. The world frames this in the negative. Here's what women get to do and men get to do, what men get to do and women cannot do. The Bible does not frame this in the negative. Women are valuable contributors to the kingdom of Christ. Because of 1542, the, the Sabbath was coming around. These women had to wait to purchase spices to go anoint Jesus' corpse and then proceed to the tomb. They clearly did not expect a resurrection. They believed that Jesus was dead. If you were circling, you saw that three times in two verses, he is mentioned as dead. They were looking for a corpse in chapter 15, verse 45. They were expecting a sealed tomb with a body inside when they asked each other this question. In chapter 16, verse 3, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? These holy women were filled with anxieties about the future as they walked to the tomb. But Mark tells us that their anxieties were needless. Look in verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Now, isn't that often the experience of so many Christians? Needless anxiety about the future. When Jesus has told us in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Our familiar friend, J.C. Ryle, helps us here. 
How often believers are oppressed and cast down by anticipation of evils, and yet, in the time of need, find that the thing they feared the most removed, and the stone has been rolled away. A large portion of the believer's anxieties arise from things which never really happen. We conjure up in our imaginations all kind of crosses and obstacles. We carry mentally tomorrow's troubles, and often, very often, we find at the end that our doubts and alarms were groundless, and that the thing that we dreaded most has never come to pass at all. Brothers and sisters, are you burdened by tomorrow's troubles? Are you weighed down by the anxieties of this life, of the unknown and the uncertain? I'm here to tell you and can do no better than what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus was dead. That's what they expected. But notice second, Jesus is alive. Look in verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. When they arrived at the tomb, there was a surprise. The large stone had been rolled away, but if that wasn't weird enough, they also encounter, verse 5, a young man sitting on the right-hand side. Now, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why does Mark take time to tell us that this young man is sitting on the right-hand side? Right in the Bible and in Western rhetoric is a positive sign. We speak of human constitutional rights, not lefts. And left-handers know that the world is literally aligned against them from scissors to silverware. In the Bible, the right hand is the good hand. As in Isaiah, the Lord promises to uphold the Israelites with his right hand in Isaiah 41. And leads Cyrus, the Persian, his instrument to deliver them from Babylon with his right hand in Isaiah 45. The Lord declares that his right hand spread out the heavens in Isaiah 48 and swears by his right hand in Isaiah 62. Matthew's gospel, the sheep are on the right and the goats are on the left. In the creed that we all confessed aloud earlier together, we actually said that the risen and ascended Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. But we see the same thing in Mark's gospel. Where do James and John ask to sit? At Jesus' right hand in glory. And Jesus tells those who are interrogating him that they will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. His position on the right hand side of the tomb is not an insignificant detail for Mark. Mark is signaling to us that this man can be trusted, which is absolutely crucial because of the message that he delivers in verse 6. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The young man dressed in white told them what happened. Jesus had died as they knew. He had been buried as they had seen for themselves. But now he is risen just as he said that he would be. They need only look in the tomb where he was buried. He's no longer there. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I want you to try to imagine what it was like for these women on this day. What they felt 
when they heard this news? What had to be going through their mind and what they were thinking as they heard these words? They had come to the tomb expecting to find a dead body. They were no more predisposed to believe in resurrection than you are. But instead they hear these words. He has risen. He is not here. Now at this point, anybody who's been studying with us knows that they should not have been completely surprised, should they have been. Jesus has said to his disciples, I will rise on the third day in Mark chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 9 and in, again in Mark chapter 10. Jesus was constantly preparing his disciples for life without him physically present. And one of the things that we see here is the patience of Jesus to teach his disciples over and over and over and over again how to prepare for life without him present. Jesus is gone and he is no longer with us present, but he has sent us something better. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, he has sent us his spirit. It has sealed us for the day of redemption. And now, because of the indwelling spirit, we can do battle with sin. Jesus is not physically present, but he has given us his scripture so that we might be prepared for life without him physically with us. And Jesus is still patient with us, often far more patient with us than we are with ourselves and certainly more patient with us than we are with other people. Jesus was always preparing his disciples for life without him physically present because Jesus knew what he had come to do. Despite of the fact that Jesus had told his disciples that he would rise again, the discovery frightened these women and filled them with fear. They were alarmed, verse 5. They were afraid, verse 8. And the angel actually had to remind them, verse 7, you will see him just as he told you. The resurrection narrative in Mark's gospel offers compelling evidence for the historicity of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. I just want to consider a few lines of evidence for you today, especially if you're someone here who's skeptical. First, the tomb is visited by women. Celsus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century AD, was very antagonistic to Christianity. He wrote all kinds of books against Christianity, and one of the arguments that he found most persuasive went like this. Christianity can't be true because in the written accounts of the resurrection are based upon the testimony of women, and we all know that women are hysterical. Those are his words, not mine. Many of Celsus' readers found him persuasive, and they agreed with him because this was a major problem. In an ancient society, women were marginalized. Their testimony was never given much credence. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. Do you see what that means? In Mark's gospel, we see credible evidence because if Mark and the Christians were making up these stories to get the early Christian movement off the ground so that they could have followers, they would have never written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' empty tomb. The only possible explanation for their presence in the Bible is that they were actually present. And they actually reported what they saw, and what they saw was actually true. Second, the tomb is empty. Mark tells us when the Sabbath has ended on Saturday evening, these women finally go to shops so that they can buy spices to anoint Jesus' body. Early on Sunday morning, they go to the tomb, something that is repeated over and over and over again in our passage. Their past purpose is not to embalm Jesus, but to mitigate the stench of decomposition and to honor his body. 
out of love and devotion for Jesus, they risk everything to give him an honorable burial. On the one hand, I think that we should see great love. But on the second hand, we should ask, why? Why would they go to anoint Jesus' corpse after the burial? Because they believed he was dead. Their willingness to speak of an empty tomb certainly had to issue from confidence. Why else would they have told people what people could have gone to cooperate for themselves when they could have just walked down to the tomb and said, the door is still closed, he's still in there. The proclamation of an empty tomb is a signpost for us that something actually happened. Third, the historicity of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead has been ground zero and remains ground zero for the debate of the truthfulness of Christianity. Matthew actually tells us that early on, people concocted a story with, against the disciples to say that someone came and stole Jesus' body. But if they stole his body... Why didn't the Pharisees just walk over to the tomb and say, see, he's still in there? They didn't gain any fortune from lying about this. If anybody reads church history, you will find that many of the disciples died a martyr's death and they lived lives that were terrible and oppressed. People may die for something that they believe to be true. But how many people in this room are willing to die for something that they know to be a lie? The Gospels describe the disciples hiding out of fear for their lives. Why would they include that if they were trying to build credible testimony? Could the disciples have gone to the wrong tomb? Absolutely. But Joseph of Arimathea knew where the tomb was. It was his tomb. And the women saw where he was laid. Mark tells us that. The Roman soldiers knew where he had been laid. They were guarding the tomb. So we can assume that the Pharisees knew where the tomb was. If the Jewish leadership was not concerned, why didn't they just parade everybody over to a tomb that was still full of a dead body? A former popular explanation was the swoon theory, arguing that Jesus only appeared to have died on the cross. Hearing things like this are beyond ridiculous. The Romans were experts at murdering people. The agony that Jesus experienced before he was crucified killed most people. The men on either side of Jesus had to have their legs broken so that they could have their death come more quickly. Some people believe that Jesus' followers hallucinated. And that doesn't explain the passage that we read earlier where 500 people had seen Jesus. Did every single one of them hallucinate at the same time? Jesus' followers demonstrate no premonition of a bodily resurrection. They are as unprepared for it as you are unprepared for it. And the transformation of Jesus' followers is unexplainable apart from the fact that he was raised. Fourth, the worship of the church. There is nothing that explains the fact that the people of God moved worship from Saturday to Sunday other than the fact that they believed Jesus Christ was raised on Sunday. That is the reason that we gather on Resurrection Sunday each and every week because we believe Sunday is significant not simply because it's the first day of the week, but because it commemorates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something dramatic happened on this day. Jesus was dead. Jesus is alive. The historical evidence for Jesus' bodily resurrection is overwhelming. But notice third, Jesus and Peter. Look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Underline that. 
and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And while a defense of historical fact from the resurrection can be gleaned from the gospel, although it might not be very interesting to many of you, we would do well to notice the burden of the message the women received was rather different than apologetics. The disciples were to go to Galilee. They were to meet Jesus. And Peter, in particular, was to be given this message. Why Peter? We've said before what we've seen in church history is that Peter actually discipled John Mark, and John Mark wrote down Peter's words in this gospel. But there's more to it than that. This was Jesus' first words to his disciples in Mark's gospel since he has been torn away from them in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke actually tells us that after his trials, after Peter had denied him, that Peter and Jesus had locked eyes. No words were issued between them. Try to imagine the deep anguish of Peter where he did exactly what Jesus told him he was going to do. You're going to deny me. I will die with you if I have to deny you. And then he sees the Savior. Have you ever looked into the face of somebody you lied to? Or made eye contact with somebody that you've sinned against? shame that you feel in your heart, knowing even when you probably still want to believe yourself to be right, that what you did was wrong. The anguish of Peter, nothing able to diminish his brokenness. We think we've sinned. He betrayed the Savior. Nothing short of a face-to-face conversation was going to help Peter. Mark tells us that Jesus is sympathetic to that. Friends, that should be an encouragement to you, that Jesus is sympathetic with broken people. There were special reasons why Peter had to be singled out to meet up with Jesus in Galilee. He needed to face up to his failure. He needed to be reminded that what he had done was wrong. He needed to be forgiven so that he could be restored, so that he could contribute to advancing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and building the church. And the great hope for us is that Peter, who had sinned greatly against the Lord, is restored to a meaningful place of service in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that is the purpose of all discipleship and all discipline in the context of the church. It is not punitive. It is to restore us to a meaningful place of usefulness in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is loving to disciple people by reading with them and praying with them and teaching them. And it is loving to discipline people and correct people so that they might be used for the sake of the kingdom. Peter had to begin to follow his Lord again. Imagine how Peter felt, just like you feel after you sin greatly, whatever sin you struggle with. And you begin to promise yourself, I'll never do that again. And now I'm going to try to create separation between me and that so that I can begin to feel like a Christian again. So tomorrow, instead of reading one chapter, I'll read 15. And instead of praying for five minutes, I'll pray for an hour. And instead of memorizing one verse, I'll memorize the entire chapter because I want to feel like God loves me again. Peter had to be restored so that he could begin to follow the Lord rightly. 
Friends, all of that is penance. That's not repentance. There is nothing that you can do, no matter how hard you try to conjure up a feeling of following the Lord, that can atone for your sin. And Peter had to learn that truth the hard way. Just think of the exceeding kindness of God to people who backslide into sin. Once again, it is our familiar friend who helps us, J.C. Ryle. The message which the angel conveys is a striking illustration of this truth. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were bid to tell the disciples that Jesus goeth before them into Galilee, but that there they shall see him. But the message is not directed generally to the eleven apostles. This alone, after their late desertion of their master, would have been gracious as an action. Yet Simon Peter, who had denied the Lord not once, not twice, but three times, especially mentioned by name. Peter, who had sinned particularly, is singled out and noticed particularly. There were to be no exceptions in this deed of grace. All of them were to be pardoned. All of the rest were to be restored to favor. And Simon Peter was included with the rest. We may well say when we read words like these, this is not the manner of men. On no point, perhaps, are our views of religion and Christianity so narrow, low, and contracted as on the point of God's exceeding willingness to pardon penitent sinners. Friends, He is more willing to forgive you than you are to repent. We think of Him as such as one of ourselves, but we forget what the prophet tells us. He delights in mercy. Let us leave this passage with the determination to open the door of mercy wide to all sinners in all of our speaking and in all of our teaching about Jesus Christ. Not least, let us leave it with a resolution never to be unforgiving towards fellow men. If Christ is so ready to forgive us, ought we not be ready to forgive other people? Who has wronged you that you are unwilling to forgive? You have never been sinned against like Jesus. Who has sinned in this room that feels that they have sinned themselves beyond the mercy of God? If you believe that, you have believed a lie. It is impossible to sin yourself beyond the mercy of God. The scripture assures us that if we come to him in repentance, if we come to him with faith, if we come to him asking for pardon, if we come to him asking for help, that he will meet us with forgiveness, that he will meet us with help, that he will fill us with his spirit, that he will help us throw off the sin that so easily entangles, that he will empower us to live resurrection life. We do not have to be pulled down by the depths of our sin. We can walk in the fullness of the spirit of Christ. Believer, there is great hope. Do not leave this place beaten down, but be of good cheer. People in this room who have struggled for years, decades in sin that they would be ashamed to mention to you have been set free from the bondage of that sin and now walk victoriously in Christ. Come and drink deeply of the waters of life this morning. Jesus forgives sinful people like Peter, like you, and like me. Come. We invite you to come. Come to Christ. Let this word go and tell the disciples and Peter. Be of hope to you today who are in despair. The message wasn't tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards 
what they're going to get when I finally condescend to meet with them in person. They better grovel at my feet really well. But I will see you. And I am going ahead of you. I will be there when you get there. And you will see me just as I told you. Friends, that is a gracious promise to us. Friends, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. We may be willing to admit that we sin, but the Bible tells us that it is worse than that, that our hearts are deceitful, is what the prophet Jeremiah tells us. In the book of Genesis, we see God say that every intention of man's heart is evil. We are wicked to the very core. It's not just that we sin generically. We sin specifically, and our sin has alienated us from God. God tells us that that sin has so radically alienated us from Him that there is no hope of everlasting life apart from repentance from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Praise God that He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Believer, take hope this morning. He pardoned Peter and He will pardon you. An unbeliever, if you are here, we invite you to believe in Jesus Christ. What do you need to do? You need to, as the Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. Is it that simple? Yes. It is the simple and offensive message of Christianity that we preach each and every week here. You are a sinner, but if you believe something so sin simple, He will forgive you. That is the only reason that we have gathered here this morning. This simple message of God incarnate, that Jesus Christ died for us. We're not told when or where or what Jesus said, but this is what we do know. That when Jesus finally met with Peter and restored him, he was never the same. If you claim to have met with Jesus and your life is yet unchanged, have you really met with Jesus? If there is nothing different about your life because of your faith in Christ, has your life ever been changed by Jesus Christ to begin with? I think the Bible would say no. The mission given to the women is to report to the disciples that Jesus is alive. But verse 8, notice what happens. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Astonishment, fear... Silence, irony. What could be a more perfect ending to Mark's gospel than that? Irony. Throughout the gospel, many whom Jesus had healed had been com commanded to silence, but they went and spoke and spread the news anyways. And now, finally, these women are commanded to go and to speak, and they remain silent, but their silence forces a question upon us. Mark's gospel is not written for the characters in the story. It's written for the readers and the hearers of Mark's gospel. Will you respond to Jesus with fear or faith? In Mark's gospel, fear is always man's response to the power of God. It's fear that led the disciples to panic when Jesus stilled the storm. The fear of the Gerasenes led them to cast Jesus out of the country a country when he healed the demoniac. The fear of the disciples led them all to flee when Jesus stepped closer and closer to the cross. It is fear that led all men and these women to finally run away. Are you going to run away today? Fear. 
Or if I finally tell people what I've been doing, I'm going to lose my job, my spouse, my friends, my money. I will lose my reputation or position of service at the church. I might be considered as somebody that they have to put on the care list. People will have to look into my life. I'll no longer be able to have certain things that I have now. I might need to get rid of conveniences that are mine. Are you going to respond in fear and let your soul perish forever? Reputation and conveniences? Or will you, like the centurion, recognize when you see the crucified one that the crucified one is the Son of God and submit yourself to the resurrected one as your king? Mark began his gospel by telling us who is Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark has been trying to answer that question across 16 chapters. Who is Jesus? And what does Jesus expect of those who follow him? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus expects faith of those who follow him. Faith and courage to repent. Faith and courage to get other people involved. Faith and courage to throw off sin. Faith and courage to identify with Jesus publicly in his death like Joseph of Arimathea. Like these women who come to the tomb. Faith and courage to approach him when the whole world will reject you for approaching him. Who is Jesus? Answering that question is of eternal significance. Faith is the beginning of new life. Of a new world. And a fellowship with Jesus Christ. Friends, will you place your faith in him today? Believer, that's not just a question for the unbelievers in the room. That is a question for you. Where are you refusing to walk in faith in your life? In what ways are you failing to carry on the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Why is your faith weak and your affection low and your love not strong? And unbelievers... We simply tell you how you can trust Him in faith. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ as your substitute. That He died in your place on the cross. Hope in His resurrection. His being raised to life is your hope of being raised to life. Believe in Him alone as God's Savior. We're not here to tell you that this is one good way, as was quoted for us earlier. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Not through Muhammad, not through Buddha, not through any philosophical system, not through any other religion. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and cling to Him with everything within you. Place your faith in Him today. And if you have questions about what that means and how to do that, I'll be in the courtyard greeting people today. Josh Miller, one of our elders in the middle of the room here, Terry's presiding today. But frankly, all of the members of this church would love to talk to you. It would be our great privilege to speak with you about trusting in Jesus. A few implications for us as we walk away today of the importance of Jesus' resurrection. First, Jesus' resurrection establishes our hope. For those who have been united to Jesus in faith, we have been made new creations, even though that transformation takes place over time. Little by little, we are putting the old self to death and putting on the new self. 
And at the beginning and end of that journey is Jesus Christ. His resurrection is our hope. This is why Paul says, if you've been buried with Christ, identifying with him in death, and if you have been raised with Christ, now put off these things and put on new things. He alone is the model of a new life. Brothers and sisters, in a world of celebrity Christianity that continues to disappoint, do not look to your favorite celebrity. Look to Jesus. Whoever is your favorite preacher, they are not the Savior. So many men and women, greater than all of us in this room, have failed miserably after more influential careers than any of us will ever have. Do not look to them. Jesus alone is the paradigm for new life. And if you find yourself parroting other celebrities, parrot Christ. The truth of the resurrection is our, the source of our hope. Second, Jesus' resurrection was a conquest over darkness. Though it's unseen and often forgotten by so many of us, we live in a world of both flesh and spirit. Behind this veil of the physical universe stands a very vibrant spiritual world. Within this world, there are demonic beings. And what we see in the scripture is that the devil is seeking, he's prowling, he's lurking to destroy. The reason that you experience so much temptation is because he longs to destroy your soul and carry you to hell. But praise be to God that the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ came, that he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. Brothers and sisters, there is a spiritual battle at play, and it is the resurrection of Christ that gives us hope in the midst of it. If you want to defeat sin in your life, cling to Christ afresh today. Third, Jesus' resurrection motivates us for kingdom advancement. Before his ascension into heaven, Jesus leaves his followers a mission, a mission to go and to proclaim the gospel. Now, why would believers go and tell other people an offensive message. You're a sinner. Your sin will separate, has separated you from God. Your sin will send you to hell. You must repent. Because they believe in the resurrection. And why are believers met with success when they proclaim that message? Because Jesus has actually been raised from the dead. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him by virtue of this resurrection. And because of his resurrection, believers are justified. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus does not want us to cluster together. Jesus wants us to scatter out into the world. Brothers and sisters, take this message that we are singing about and reading about and confessing together and studying right now and proclaim it to other people. Their only hope in life and death is the resurrection of of Jesus Christ and what he did for his people. Proclaim to them this good news. Believers, take heart. And the unbelievers, come. The mission would be impossible if Jesus had not been raised. Brothers and sisters, we've gathered on this Easter Sunday to remind ourselves he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words and we take comfort from the scripture. I'll be quite honest, Father, we just take comfort in the entirety of this service to hear each other sing, to confess sin and remind ourselves of the truth about each other, to study the word together has been a, a privilege, a delight. And each of these blessings, each of these privileges come with responsibility. This is not just for our own edification. It is so that we might be a blessing to the world. 
God, we pray that you would send us out into the world with greater confidence today because of our Savior's death-defying, death-defeating resurrection. May that give us courage where we have lacked it and hope when it has waned in our lives. Father, we pray that you would help us with our anxieties, that we might hear these words afresh. He is not here. He is risen. You will see him just as he said. Father, we will see your son Jesus when he comes. We look forward to that day. Help us to look forward to it with great anticipation. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the Christ of God. Amen.